Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Mark Nelson, and uh, welcome to SACPAW. Thanks for coming out in such miserable weather. Um, today we're going to have uh, Dr. Jim Tagg talk about uh, U.S. elections, how we got to where we are, and American exceptionalism. Um, Dr. Tagg uh, has been at the University of Lethbridge since 1969, and he retired... Um, in 2004, so um, teaching American history. Um, before we start, uh, everybody, uh, please turn off cell phones, and I'd like to thank uh, Shaw for broadcasting this, uh, CKXU at the University, and the Lethbridge Herald and other media for uh, publicizing this event. Um, I uh, will keep it brief, and I'll let uh, Dr. Tagg start his talk. Uh, thanks, Mark. Mark uh, and I have often had um, political discussions. Uh, he's a bit of a political junkie, as I am. And I should also say that Mark was a student of mine in the early years, uh, back when we had very few students in class, and you got to read everybody's face almost all of the time. And, and Mark would always give you this kind of the squint, you know, every so often that I don't quite believe what you're saying, and I think you're wrong. So I hope to see that from you folks today, too, and I hope you have criticisms of what I say, because it isn't uh, uh, God's pure truth, what I'm saying, I suppose. Pretty near, though. Uh, thanks to the uh, Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs as well. Uh, let me start by saying that I am not going to talk about horse race politics at the at the start, we can do that in the discussion period if we like. Um, we can look at the racing form then. There's a lot of similarity between the racing form and race, horse race politics as it's covered in the media in the United States. I also uh, want to uh, for us to raise the issue of demographics because it has come up big in the last 48 hours in the United States regarding this previous election. Now, I'm going to say at the outset that this was an important election in some ways. It was important because uh, of the preservation of women's rights, I'm pretty confident, and especially for young women. I uh, think it was important because the Supreme Court will not become uh, an entirely a Roberts court. That is, uh, Roberts, John Roberts, the Supreme Court Chief Justice, is very much a corporate lawyer and uh, most of his decisions that are important in his lifetime have been decisions regarding regulation, or regu I should say deregulation. So it's been important in that regard. Uh, in a way, the, the election, too, is a halt to a 19th century laissez-faire uh, attitude that could have come in, and uh, the continuance of a a very right-wing idea that no government is the best government. Uh, 
So saying that, most of what I'm going to talk about today is how similar the political parties are and why the uh, uh, American democratic system uh, has in some ways come to a kind of a halt. So first, I'm going to talk about the campaign a little bit, and then I'm going to talk about three fundamental underlying things that cause problems in American uh, political democracy. First, I want to call this a ferocious and empty campaign. And the first part of that is the vision thing. You know, the hopey, changey thing that Sarah Palin said about uh, Barack Obama. Because Mr. Obama seemed to promise so much in 2008 without specifying what grand visions he proposed to initiate, and because Mr. Obama stood in such sharp contrast to possibly the worst president in American history, George W. Bush, it was assumed that the differences in governance of Mr. Obama and the Democrats from the Republicans would be vast. As Bill Clinton put it in mocking the Republicans' claim for, re for election, we left him a total mess. He hasn't finished cleaning it up yet, so fire him and put us back in. While Clinton's scorn of the Republicans was deserved, Mr. Obama was only mod has only modest accomplishments to claim. And there's debate on that, I should say. Aside from a modest stimulus, a no-brainer salvage of the auto industry, and a confusing Affordable Health Care Act, all of which merely represented shoring up private consumer capitalism as it had been promoted during the last 30 years, Obama and the Democrats did not take on any massive reworking of the economy or initiate any substantial vision of the future. Mr. Obama has been astoundingly vague and bland about the vision thing. He speaks in platitudes about what Americans need and want and where the country should go. Bill Ivey, author of a just-published book entitled Handmaking America that addresses how directionless Americans have become, quotes an address the president, uh, that President Obama gave in 2010. Here it is. What has defined us as a nation since our founding is the capacity to shape our destiny, our determination to fight for the America we want for our children, even if we're unsure exactly what that looks like even if we don't yet know precisely how we're going to get there. We know we'll get there. How glib, how empty, how visionless is that? Ivy correctly calls this statement one of vision vacuum and leaderly drift. Mr. Obama has been worse, of course. His 2012 primary and general election campaign represented the most extreme use of delusion and flip-flopping that presidential politics has ever seen. He seemed to support the Republican Party's radical stance on moving women's rights and civil rights back 60 years, but then claimed he would support many of those rights. He promised to overhaul entitlements, but later promised to protect Medicare and Medicaid. He promised to lower the deficit while not raising taxes, in fact, lowering taxes by 20% on the middle class, but offered no evidence as, how, as to how this would happen, despite the undisputed evidence of independent researchers that Mr. Romney's numbers simply did not add up. Chameleons would be embarrassed to be compared to Mr. Romney. They don't change color that fast or often. It is no coincidence that fact-checking media, as reported by Michael Enright on Sunday morning this last week, have determined that Mr. Romney's campaign was filled with contextual lies, lies and pants-on-fire lies, 
in 46% of pro-Romney advertising, 46%. Mr. Obama's campaign, it is sad to say, did so 28% of the time. In short, neither Mr. Obama nor Mr. Romney offered anything approaching a vision for the future of the U.S. Secondly, dodging the issues. Because the economy and jobs are so important in the U.S. today, both candidates seem to address economic matters almost exclusively in their campaigns. But did they? Mr. Obama talked about the past, saving the auto industry and banks and Wall Street. But what did he propose for the future? Almost nothing. No new stimulus, no new health care reform, no entitlement reform, and so on. He promised essentially to stay the course, whatever that is. Paul Ryan, the Republican vice presidential candidate, was right to challenge Mr. Obama by asking what would be different in the next four years if Mr. Obama was elected. He has not answered, and we do not know. As I have already said, Mr. Romney dodged the issue of the economy even more, simply arguing by the end of the campaign that as a successful businessman, his election would, in and of itself, instill confidence in American business, and lead to the revival of the economy and the restoration of jobs in the old trickle-down fashion Republicans have argued since the 1870s. David Brooks of the New York Times, a usually intelligent pundit, declared without a shred of evidence that he thought Mr. Romney better able to make big changes. This was blind hope at its finest. And look at what issues the candidates did not address at all. First, despite the fact that the campaign ended with an enormous superstorm, Sandy, neither Mr. Obama nor Mr. Romney raised the issue of climate change, despite the fact that storms like this one are predicted as a very likely consequence of ocean temperatures rising. Secondly, while the infrastructure of the U.S. crumbles, neither candidate this time around suggested a program or programs to address this matter. Dwight Eisenhower was a staunch private enterprise Republican who hated federal government spending, but even he suggested and helped bring into existence a vast interstate highway system through a combined private government effort. Thirdly, despite the blatant villainy of banks and Wall Street in initiating the economic crisis, and despite the fact that they were bailed out, no campaign mention was made of new bank regu regulation similar to the old Glass-Steagall Act, which has been repealed, or even of the extremely weak Dodd-Frank Act, which replaced it. In the New Deal in the 1930s, some bankers and Wall Street criminals were at least prosecuted. No candidate calls for that today. Finally, they refused to mention the Supreme Court. The new president will be making swing vote appointments in the Supreme Court, meaning that court would have become radically right-wing under Romney, but now probably moderately centrist under Obama. All of these and other issues are of immediate importance. In short, both candidates either avoided the very big issues altogether or were glib about what they might do on the matters they did raise. Third, a small electorate who counted. Both candidates campaigned to a very small sliver of the American electorate, those found in swing states. And that, that's where they mentioned issues, which are essentially local. Among these, the states of Ohio, Florida, and Virginia received most of the attention, along with Colorado and, to a lesser extent, Wisconsin. Why? Analysts tell us it is because all of the other regions of the United States, 
were already decided, and they were already decided because like-minded voters have tended to clump together, either in large cities or gated communities, leaving whole states already decided in regard to who they will vote for before the election has even begun. Thus, presidential candidates have not even bothered to to speak to the vast majority of American voters, except indirectly, and there is a big indirect effect, I should say. The Electoral College, with its winner-take-all application in most states, is partly to blame, and remedies for that have been suggested but will unlikely pass since it is not in the interest of the dominant party in such states as California or Alabama to change it. A culture of ideology is also to blame for these two political worlds that do not meet and do not speak to one another. The goal of unrestrained, unregulated corporate capitalism became the real religion of most Americans with the election of Ronald Reagan, who declared government to be the problem, not the solution. So from the late 1980s onward, all Democrats, all Republicans and most Democrats subscribe to this new version of how economics are superior to societies and promoted again, as they had in the 1870s through the 1890s and in the 1920s, a kind of rugged individualism, almost libertarian view of how life should be lived. Behind the scenes, moderate corporate capitalism and consumerism were the real forces. Remember uh, George W. Bush telling people after the uh, 9-11 disaster to go shop. It was one of the greatest disconnects of um, a thought you could ever have, you'd think. The opposing ideology of some Democrats does little to challenge this Ayn Rand idea of laissez-faire joined to hyper-individualism. The only liberal thing left about the Democrats flows out of the new left movement of the 1960s and 70s that promoted social liberation, racial equality, women's rights, and equality, pro-choice, and the rights of the marginalized. In other words, democratic dialogue has ended in the U.S., and it has and it was astounding to watch Barack Obama spend his first four years trying to restore it among people who would not even begin to think outside their ideological boxes and cooperate and compromise. Fourth, I have to say something about the Gilded Age. Lack of vision or major issues and a campaign that addressed a small part of the electorate did not lessen the ferocity of the campaign or its extraordinary cost. All of this reminded me of the politics of the Gilded Age between the late 1870s and the late 1890s. In that period, poorly regulated industrial capitalism and unrestricted Wall Street power um, of poorly regulated industrialism and unrestricted Wall Street power, the Democrats and Republicans shared the same fundamental beliefs and interests. Both major parties supported the robber barons of industry. John D. Rockefeller, for example, by the late 1880s had almost all of the Pennsylvania legislature, including members of both parties, on his payroll through bribes. Pork barrel and earmarked legislation prevailed as it has in our own time. Mr. Obama and Mr. Romney both have ties to Wall Street. Both parties are lobbied by the same financial interests and both receive campaigning financing support from these interests. Therefore, Mr. Obama does not speak like Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who upon election in 1932 immediately pushed bank reform, condemned the economic royalists, as he called them, proposed and had passed a wealth tax, 
spent enormous sums to employ the unemployed and attacked the Supreme Court for its backward ideas and malicious obstructionism. Mr. Obama has preferred to fashion himself after Abraham Lincoln, a Republican, in his constant quest to shape his own personal character, even though the urgent matter is the political, economic, and cultural character of the United States as a whole. Mr. Romney has been more brazen and unapologetic, of course, paying a mere 15% in taxes on his enormous wealth and sending some of his assets to safe tax havens ashore. In the offshore, in the Gilded Age, the narrowness and the essential and essential differences between the two leading parties meant that elections were closely con contested, thus the ferocity. In 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, gained fewer votes than his rival, Samuel Tilden, yet became president after a tangled and corrupt recount of votes. I'm sure you all remember 2000 when George W. Bush got half a million votes less than Al Gore but won the election in the Supreme Court of the United States. In 1880, Winfield uh, Scott Hancock lost to James A. Garfield by 0.1% of the vote. Uh, Grover Cleveland beat James Blaine by 0.3% of the vote. I can go through the rest of these, but I'm sure you're not very interested. They're, they're among the dullest presidents in the history of the United States. Um, so I won't go on with that. But the big issues of the Gilded Age, or the issues, only issues they would debate, were currency and the tariff. Should it be primarily hard currency or paper money? Uh, and should it be a high tariff or a moderately high tariff? I once had to take a course. I bring this up because I want payback. I had once had to take a course in graduate school on, the cur on currency and the tariff from 1870 to 1890 <laughs> at 8 o'clock in the morning in a winter term. <laughs> So I deserve to bring this Gilded Age up. <laughs> so in other words, in the Gilded Age, despite starving farmers and militant workers and cities and towns in disrepair and growing cities that needed all sorts of things, the Gilded Age only aroused currency and the tariff as issues because both parties and their leaders were wedded to banks and Wall Street. Elections were tight because the two parties were so similar, or at least appeared to be. From 2000 to the present, elections have also been tight, but the candidates have not appeared to be all that different in where they are coming from and the extent of reforms and changes they propose. So both presidential candidates offered no vision, avoided some of the biggest issues of our time, and in kowtowing to the large financial interests of the United States, presented themselves as latter-day Gilded Age politicians. Why have we come to this state of affairs? What cultural underpinnings have brought us to this point of political stasis and compromised democracy? Let me offer three, sometimes linked, reasons. Number one, the tyranny of corporatism. In the 1880s to the 1890s and in the 1920s until the Great Depression, Americans embraced the rule of the corporation over democratic society. After the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980, first the Republicans and then many Democrats reopened the Pandora's box of corporatism. The new corporatism has promoted the claims that privatization is always superior to public ownership and control. Corporatism claims that democracy succeeds to a free market system. That is, democracy is born from the free market and is dependent upon it. 
Therefore, as John Ralston Saul put it in his 1995 book, The Unconscious Civilization, quote, the citizen is reduced to the status of a subject at the foot of the throne of the marketplace. The economy must be of primary interest because all other things flow from it, the new corporatism argues. Corporatism holds that individualism is the most important thing to be protected. In fact, almost the only thing to be protected. Again, as Saul said, quote, there are those who talk about individualism as if it were a replacement for government. Many talk about that today. In fact, corporatism even holds that the individual and their families are the only reality, with society being a mere fiction. I don't know if you remember the quote that was attributed to Margaret Thatcher uh, in which she said, there, there is no society, there are only people's, uh, individuals and families. Um, it's not clear that she said that or said that in that direct fashion, but she sure believed it. This time, corporatism does not mean economic corporations and businesses exclusively. This time, corporatism is more total, including big labor unions, whether auto workers or teachers, the media, which seeks truth second, if at all, to satisfying their advertisers and getting more of them, higher education, which seeks the shaping of students into able citizens and members of society second, if at all, to selling credentials for employment, and organized radical religions, which sometimes proclaim that the only truth is the Bible and use God's will as the retort to democratic decision-making and even the administration of government. Again, quoting John Ralston Saul, we are, almost all of us, employees in some sort of corporation, public or private, and as such, our primary obligation is loyalty to the corporation. The idea of a collective society, real and necessary, has largely been abandoned. How many times did you hear Mr. Romney or Mr. Obama use these phrases? The general welfare, the public interest, the public good, the common good, the improvement of society as a whole. Well, I don't remember them using it once, but perhaps they did by mistake sometimes. Corporatists have associated these phrases to mean big government spending, liberalism, or worse, socialism, or even worse than that, communism, and thereby succeeded in repressing any viable notion of public good. Meanwhile, the United States, because outside of this corporatist framework, now exists primarily as a shell in emblematic form as the American flag or Uncle Sam or the Pledge of Allegiance. When June and I were growing up, people did fly the flag, but not like they do today. As a slogan, it exists as a slogan, as the greatest nation ever, or as a chant at sporting uh, uh, contests, USA, USA. All I hear when I hear that is jingoism, jingoism, but or as the leading military power in the, in the world, able to impose shock and awe, even if impotent in creating peace, justice, and liberty. Okay, second of the three underlying things uh, I'll call entertaining ourselves to death after a book by Neil Postman. It is compulsory nowadays to first address every American election for what they have become, day after day, month after month, sometimes year after year, soap opera entertainments, or what media folks call, without apparent embarrassment, horse race politics. Horse race politics are the consequence, in part, 
of fixed-date elections, which allow parties and candidates to maintain permanent campaigns between elections. The rise of American popular political journalism in the 1790s, made even more loud and anxious over the last two centuries, has given us one political campaign after another of bombast, ballyhoo, and feigned importance. Modern factors have made matters worse. The rise of television and even cyber networking has elevated things like candidates' appearance and likability quotient into the most important elements in a campaign, as opposed to character, which was uh, what elected George Washington, the first president of the United States. The addition, uh, the addition of PACs, political action committees, in the 1970s and 80s, gave candidates access to arm's-length negative advertising whereby dubious truths taken out of context could be applied to one's opponent. The United States Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission in 2010 extended the recognition of corporations as citizens to include the First Amendment free speech rights of individual persons and citizens for whom it was intended thereby allowing even more enormous funding at even further arm's length from candidates to say almost whatever they wanted about candidates. Of late, this decision seems to have further distended the idea of free speech and who should have, and who should have it, to allow employers to recommend strongly to their employees for whom they should vote uh, with all of the threats to advancement or employment that may imply. The consequence of these developments and others we don't have time to consider here has not been to create an electorate richly informed about candidates and politics, but to distort ideologies and issues and personal characteristics further. In the main, they have furthered a sense of dumbing down in politics, or what Neil Postman called entertaining ourselves to death in his 1985 book. According to Postman, Americans have traded rights and responsibilities for medicated bliss. Form, in the television age, he argued, and I'm certain he would agree in the age of the Internet and Twitter, excludes the content. Or, as Marshall McLuhan put it, the, the medium is the message. Any new edition of Postman's book would have to have the title Entertained and Now Dead. The public is now fully anesthetized insofar as they pretend to be citizens. Finally, I want to talk about the myth of exceptionalism for a couple of minutes. During his first term as president, Mr. Obama was accused by his opposition of apologizing for America abroad and of not believing in American exceptionalism. He campaigned doggedly to reverse that impression, often alluding to America as the greatest nation, one imbued with imbued with exceptional qualities and having an exceptional future. Exceptionalism is, of course, code for we are better than everybody else. If otherwise, Americans would readily admit that other nations are also exceptional in their own specific ways. They don't. Exceptionalism also suggests that Americans have shared a culture amongst themselves apart from the rest of the world. They live in and want to live in an isolated culture. It began with John Winthrop telling the Puritans before arriving in New England that they would be as a city upon a hill for all to see. They were to be a religious example, a superior religious example. The American Revolution of 1776-1783 uh, was fought by those who believed the U.S. to be more virtuous 
than England. American governments were freer and less corrupt than any other. They, they deluded themselves into believing. Europe was considered the evil degenerate other, as it still is, thereby allowing Americans to forget that they won the revolution in 1781 because of French military and supply support. When Thomas Jefferson sent the Lewis and Clark expedition west, he envisioned, envisioned an empire of liberty, unlike any other imperialist takeover of land in history. Pretending that the West was uninhabited, or largely so, Americans embraced the manifest destiny of their Western settlement. They later proposed in World War I that only the U.S. could make the world safe for democracy and then proceeded to claim victory in World War II and the rebuilding of Europe as a consequence of their special genius and beneficence, which it partly was. I got half a page. With the receding of America as a world empirical power and with what I think is a retreat from the military adventurism, adventurism for the foreseeable future, as I argued upon Mr. Obama's election in 2008 and repeat here again in, in uh, uh, arguing against Trevor Harrison of the sociology department who, who brought that up in 2008 and brought it up again this year, I don't think they are going to be adventurism because they don't have the money. That's not that they don't have the interest. Uh, American exceptionalism seems to me an excuse then for further isolation from the world. My brother echoes many Americans when he says that he need not travel abroad and see other cultures because Americans have all they need at home. But the increasingly lavish displays of American exceptionalism in all sorts of flag-waving and other gestures seems to me to be filled with fear as well. Winthrop did not tell the Puritans on the ship, the Arabella, that they were to be a city upon a hill because he thought they were morally stronger than other humans, but because he worried that his Puritans might be weak and fail. In fact, he was certain they would not be able to be so pure as he wished. And that unconscious fear seems to me, the case, me to be the case with uh, exceptionalism today. What does this have to do with American politics? It means that image is vastly more important than reason, that politicians must always appeal to this now bizarre idea of exceptionalism, and that the scope for offering vision or new ideas is so limited as to strangle real democracy. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Dr. Tegg, for an interesting talk. I'm sorry you didn't say anything controversial that might stimulate discussion. Um, we'll be back in um, approximately half hour. Thanks.